Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's Wednesday, August 9th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and Target, the retailer Target, is facing a lawsuit from Stephen Miller. He leads the America First Legal Foundation. The America First Legal Foundation has found a Target shareholder to say that the retailer did not properly perceive the financial risks and misled investors when it stocked LGBTQ pride merchandise for June, which is Pride Month. They have always done this, but this month it engendered a backlash. And so the America First Legal Foundation is suing. Who led the backlash and the protests against Target? Well, that would be, prominently, the America First Legal Foundation. Trump advisor Stephen Miller. He starts a protest. The protest works. Target's stock price drops. And then he turns around and sues. Now, lucky for you, fans of justice in the world, this suit is going nowhere. But you do have to say, the balls on this guy The readily detectable and certain snug rainbow onesies available from Target balls at a deep discount are those snug rainbow onesies. Look, the play here is not to win. The experts will say this suit is going nowhere. The play is to win not money or the lawsuit, but to win attention, to create a little harassment, to get some approval from Fox, and maybe to generate some more donations. That, my friends, is the right-wing rainbow. Stephen Miller, you are truly committed to monochromism on all the issues. On the show today, a New York Times Magazine story about a sexual assault in a Loudoun County public school bathroom, a good bit of reporting that was badly needed, a but first. The West has dally dithered and delayed in arming Ukraine, analysts find. The analysts of the Royal United Services Institute for Defense and Security Studies say, according to a chief expert, the most glaring deficiency is the inability of Ukraine's partners to appreciate the lead times between decisions and their desired effects. This deficiency is being demonstrated at great cost in Ukraine's current offensive. It is an offensive or a counteroffensive that is going quite slowly. So up next, I will talk to Russia expert Olga Lautman about the current status of the counteroffensive, about whether or not Russians really support the war, and about all the worries Putin must be having at the moment. Olga Lautman up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Olga Lautman is a senior fellow at SIPA, and she is the co host of the Kremlin File podcast. We're going to talk about what's going on inside of Moscow, what's going inside of Vladimir Putin's brain. She knows something about all those things. Olga, welcome to the gist. Thank you so much. Let's talk about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. I think on day-to-day stories, sometimes we hear that the Ukrainians defended this city well or gained this many meters of ground. And yet, broadly, I'm not sure how well it's going. I've heard um, very informed people saying, actually, kind of disappointingly, since spring happened. What's your assessment? I mean, it is definitely going slower than expected, but it is also frustrating because you have Europe and United States who, you know, have been sending weapons to Ukraine, but they have been delaying a lot of shipments. So you have, for instance, tanks that were finally approved in March after, you know, six months of negotiations and saying, no, we won't send them. We don't want to escalate. And... It finally gets there and, you know, all these weapons, F-16s now are on the way, supposedly the end of this year. If this was delivered without the negotiations, Russians on the front lines wouldn't have the opportunity over the past nine months to place millions of mines that now Ukrainians have to mine. So, I mean, it is very, very frustrating and it is also, you know, And the other frustrating point is how the West treats Russia. They elevate Russia to a formidable enemy. Every single conversation is focused on how will Russia feel? How will Putin feel? And, you know, if we have Western values and we know, for instance, that we will defend countries who are facing genocide and, you know, unprovoked full scale invasion, then we have to make decisions to defend our values without the consideration of what will Putin think or how will he be humiliated or, you know, how will Russia react? And that's, you know, where the frustration is. And yes, things are you know, uh, more difficult on the front lines. As soon as Ukraine, I mean, gets F-16s, it will definitely speed things up. Um, And also ATACOMs, which are desperately needed in order to, you know, speed up the offensive, the counteroffensive. Does the West, broadly speaking, worry about how what Putin's feelings are for any reason other than his feelings are attached to his limbic system, his limbic system's attached to a button, and that button is attached to a nuclear weapon. It's not like we're being kind or psychologically sensitive. It's just a consideration to take into account, considering that he could use nuclear weapons. 
Yes, but my argument to that is that if anyone is to face any nuclear fallout from Russia, it would be Poland, it would be Estonia, it would be Ukraine. And they are continuing. I mean, Poland opened the door, you know, borders to Putin and sent a big FU to him and allowed all weapons, despite a nuclear threat, despite nuclear, you know, Medvedev um, actually threatening Poland with a nuclear attack, they opened the borders and continue, allowed all weapons to flow through. So what I think is that it's more of a Cold War mindset that we have yet to correct, where we see, you know, Russia as the center of gravity that we all have to basically rotate around and that's it and we see even prior to the full-scale invasion we saw how the west propped up russia's military meanwhile anyone who was focused on russia's corruption issues could have told you that their military frankly is you know garbage because of the theft uh from contracts and you know the lack of uh money being invested into various military um, uh, equipment. Yes, but you're articulating a strategy where the West uh, just jettisons the idea of understanding the enemy's mindset and taking into account an overreaction on the part of the enemy. You're saying, well, let us let the Ukrainians or the Poles, the ones who would be most likely to bear the brunt, lead the way. But the Ukrainians certainly in the Poles would be the next step. They're also the one who would be facing the most short term damage. So I don't think it's a responsible look. I am all for arming the Ukrainians. I think we should have armed the Ukrainians with much more uh, serious weapons. We should have done it earlier. I don't understand why we're not having a program to train F-16 fighters, even if they don't have the F-16s. The moment they're delivered, the fighters should be ready to go, if at all possible. All of that stipulated, I still think it's very responsible for Western leaders, American leaders, to at least take into account the fact that this guy has intercontinental ballistic missiles, not just battlefield nuclear missiles, and you have to treat them a little bit differently than you would the ruling junta of Myanmar, for instance. Yeah, but the same can be said for North Korea, and we don't make our decisions based on, you know, how North Korea feels or how Kim Jong-un feels. And, you know, he hasn't again, demonstrated he the capacity to have a nuclear weapon that could reach the United States. Yeah, but you see what he does constantly firing off, you know, uh, ballistic missiles. I mean, right. it's uh, pretty much on a weekly, uh, weekly event at this point. But my point is, we still get to the end result. So yeah, that's right. That's right. We take it into account. It slows us down. But since we get the F-16s anyway, could we please just do away with exactly. that dither so the, the dithering that's baked into the process? I exactly. So yeah. with, with tanks, for instance, you know, six months, we could have saved Ukrainians and sent tanks six months ago, instead of taking all these considerations for six months to get back to the end result of, yes, you will receive tanks. And the same thing is happening with F-16s now. So let's talk about who the Ukrainians are fighting. They're fighting the Russian regulars, and all indications are that, uh, that their motivation is nowhere near the Ukrainians. But the Wagner group, and I want to talk about how important they're going to be to the fight going forward. They're motivated not by pride of country, but by, if you read Joshua Yaffa's article in The New Yorker, by fear of being zeroed out. In other words, if they take one step backwards, these Wagner fighters, they get shot in the head. So that's a motivator. How important 
Give me an assessment of where you think Wagner will be in the fight going forward. And if we are to take the events on face value that Pergozin has is now operating from Belarus and they won't be in Russia, isn't that of major impact as to how this fight shapes up uh, in the in the months to come? It definitely is. But Ukraine has been, you know, concerned about activities from the Belarusian border for the past, you know, since the full scale invasion. Um, The Belarus was softly annexed by Russia a few years ago when Putin stepped in and, you know, saved Lukashenko and uh, kept him in power. Um, and then from there, he used Belarus as his like military playground. So, um, yes, right now, allegedly Wagner is there. You know, uh, I still don't understand the full story with this because there, it just it doesn't make sense. You know what is going on? Because the last report I read in Russian news is that Wagner is. Uh, you know, resumed recruitment inside of Russia, mm-hmm. more for, so for Africa operations than Ukraine, because the recruits who it was an investigation by a Russian outlet, and they posed as, you know, interested potential recruits, and uh, we're told that they will be shipped off to Africa. So as of now, I mean, we might have Wagner who will run destabilizing operations, for instance, along the Sawaki Gap which has to be monitored, especially for Poland, for Lithuania and and, uh, Belarus's neighbors. But at the same time, I don't see it as a threat. I see it more as a diversion. And if anything, I frankly think that um, the threat is bigger to Putin and the Kremlin, because if you read the Wagner channels, and the sentiment, I mean, it is something that you've never seen historically, not in the Soviet Union, not in, you know, a modern Russia where you have a group of people attacking directly the defense ministry and the, you know, uh, the Kremlin now. We saw the terrorist um, Strelkov, who was crucial for Russia in um, annexation of Crimea and Donbass. He was recently arrested. So frankly, right now they have their own you know, issues and you have more and more factions popping up who are challenging the Kremlin. So for them, they have the concern coming from Ukraine and their drone strikes in the heartland of Russia and the same with, um, you know, uh, with uh, the people from within uh, Russia. And just to add one point, it's an excellent point you made because, you know, again, you see Ukrainians are very motivated, very organized um, since the full-scale invasion on the front lines where you saw even since last summer, the Chechens were shooting the Wagnerites and the Wagnerites were shooting any Russians who attempted to abandon. And, you know, like... How does a country attempt a full-scale invasion if you have their own people who are supposedly fighting for, you know, Russia's motherland killing each other, you know? So you get to the point of even the difference of, of tactics and, and the difference of morale, which has a huge effect on the battlefield. By taking Wagner off the battlefield, is Putin essentially conceding that at least the tactic, the successful tactic of using of using waves of human bodies, expendable human bodies, ex-prisoners or other Wagner conscripts, he's not going to have that available to him. He's not going to get the Chechens or the regular Russian conscripts able to do that. 
Not really, because the defense ministry, interestingly enough, started recruiting last November their own prisoners. So, I mean, they basically took over the role of Wagner. And then in the process, you had all these other mercenary groups, you know, pop up from Gazprom to the Russian Orthodox Church and their mercenary groups, all to be sent to Ukraine. So, frankly, it's basically the same situation. Just out of curiosity, I've literally never heard anyone answer this question. What about Ukrainian prisoners? Are they, have they been asked to fight for Ukraine? Have the Ukrainian jails been empty? No, not that I've heard. I, an investigative journalist, are monitoring all mobilization and, you know, they raised recently the mobilization rate, but we have not heard, you know, definitely not the tactics Russia is using of, of uh, pulling people out of a mental prison, I mean, mental hospitals and prisons. No. What do you make of the fact that Russia is now attacking cities that they hadn't attacked since the second day of the war? Odessa, they decimated the cathedral, the church in the middle of town. Uh, This was major Ukrainian city that had not had bombs dropped on it or missiles fired at it for months and months. What's that tell us? It tells us that Russia is desperate and they're lashing out. And it frankly happened, you know, Uh, The Western media got it extremely wrong and thought that it was in retaliation for the Kerch Bridge, which frankly is illegal and shouldn't exist. But it was in retaliation because, I mean, for Putin, it was a huge slap in the face to see uh, Zelensky standing with Erdogan uh, exchanging the same, you know, alleged quote-unquote Nazi fighters that Russia is supposedly in Ukraine fighting, handing those prisoners, uh, Ukrainian prisoners, back to Zelensky. And at the same time, we saw Russia, you know, uh, immediately uh, get out of the grain deal. And then now Odessa is a huge uh, port, you know, for grain. And we saw them lash out and strike Odessa strike uh, grain storage facilities and, and frankly threaten to strike any ship that is moving, carrying grain. So it's just Russia lashing out because they have, I mean, there's not that much of a response they can do. So, of course, as always, they target civilian targets. So Putin has to pay attention to a lot of different fronts. And I don't just mean the literal fronts. He has internal politics. He has his own oligarchs. He has his economy and he has public opinion. And of all those... I at least have not seen too much credible reporting that public opinion is something that has surprised him or shocked him on the downside. Because the Levada Center, which is widely seen as credible polling organization within Russia, I'm sure you'll say many Russians are afraid to answer pollsters' questions. That is true, and I'll address that at the end of my question. But if you look at what the polling is, 82% of Russians approve of Vladimir Putin. That's a poll from July, 15% disapprove. And this has been consistent in the low 80s for approval since the month the war started. And, and this is why it's important, even if you say, oh, Levada, how can we trust them? Their own polling showed that Putin's approval before the war in 2021 was in the 60s. So we got almost a 20-point bump, and that has stayed consistent. What do we make of that? I wouldn't trust the polling in any authoritarian state. I mean, that's my frank answer to it, because, look, of course... That's the trajectory, and it's always been the trajectory that Putin, you know, after he illegally annexed Crimea, his uh, 
numbers shot up. But there is absolutely, you see what is happening on the ground. Besides the fact of people trying to escape mobilization, you had close to a million Russians after a partial mobilization was announced fleeing Russia because they didn't want to fight this war. You've had scenes that look like they're coming out of a circus of you know, Russians running around courtyards away from military police. Just in the past two weeks, you've had, I think, what is it, 38 military enlistment offices, uh, Molotov cocktails thrown into these military enlistment offices. You see their normally well-oiled propaganda machine, which, I mean, has never faltered. Now you see all these different factions, whether it's Wagner, whether it's Strelkov's people, whether it's the nationalists, whether it's the Chechens, all, you know, making criticisms. And every time there is a successful counteroffensive move or Russia suffers... Um, humiliation on the battlefield, you see these, you know, uh, propagandists, the military bloggers, uh, start attacking the Ministry of Defense or being critical of Putin. So there's absolutely zero percent chance that a poll can be consistent when, I mean, for God's sakes, you had a mutiny on Moscow, an attempted one. I mean, if people were this satisfied, you know, they wouldn't, and even that wouldn't explain the polls, it wouldn't explain the support for Progosian, which frankly is probably just as high, at least it was prior to the mutiny. They then became disappointed that he didn't finish the job. So I frankly would not believe any polls coming out of an authoritarian state. Oh, okay. But the New Yorker says that the Levada Center is trusted and independent. The Economist says so. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty says this. Like I said, there's been the baseline of polling. They've been attacked by the Russian organization. I understand that uh, it would be more comforting to think that Putin has had a significant decline in popularity, but um, you that's your answer. You just don't throw out the polls. It doesn't matter if everyone says they're independent. So, I mean, again, I do not believe the polls. I can tell you my parents are from the Soviet Union. They escaped the Soviet Union. And trust me, at that point, you know, I don't care how independent any polling claimed. There are certain things you just don't say, just like every single Russian knows there are certain discussions you don't have on the phone because you always have to worry about security services, you know, monitoring your uh, conversations. Mm -hmm. What are the next signs, the next pieces of data that will tell you how the war is going for Putin, for Ukraine? I think the my what I'm watching is for the counteroffensive to speed up, which I do think it's just now it's the tedious, you know, work of removing these mines once Ukraine clears the first line of defense and hopefully receives, you know, longer range missiles, then I think um, that's going to cause even more pressure on the system inside of Russia. And uh, again, we saw with Prigozhin, you know, it's not that he even just assembled a bunch of Wagnerites and marched towards Moscow. The implications are much more grave for Putin than that, because Putin didn't know for those hours who in his security services, his SVR, GRU, FSB, Ministry of Defense, who 
he could trust, who he can rely on, and even Rosguardia, like no one, all uh, layers of security peeled off as the Wagner mercenaries were making their way towards Moscow. That must be extremely petrifying for Putin to know that he doesn't know who around him is betraying him. And Prigozhin would have never opened his mouth like this. And this started last September. He would have never opened his mouth, you know, cr being this critical and, and escalating uh, over the past, you know, six or eight months without having support from inside. So someone was clearly backing him and not just one someone. It had to be people who are close to Putin, who see that, you know, he has taken them into a dead end and basically with Putin in power. And, and I mean, the guy is a wanted war criminal. He can't even step outside of Russia. He can't even go to South Africa to represent Russia. Um, so they know that, you know, with Putin, there is no future at all. No room for negotiations, no sanctions, potential future sanctions removals, which I hope we don't make the same policy, but that's a different discussion. So the news um, is the news is tightening around Putin. I think so. I, okay. I mean, the day Putin in, you know, launched his full scale invasion, I said this is going to be the end of him. This will end him. And that's it. Olga Lautman is a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and she's the creator and co-host of the Kremlin File podcast series. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few, Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general, and he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee but then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. 
On election day 2021, Glenn Youngkin capped a come-from-behind surge to defeat Terry McAuliffe, a popular Democrat and recent incumbent in the Virginia governor's race. Because 2021 is an off-off-year election, and because the results surprised so many people, Washington people, who were themselves not unlikely to have voted in the race, it's not an exaggeration to say this was the biggest political story of the year. We're going to press forward with a curriculum that includes listening to parents' input, a curriculum that allows our children to run as fast as they can, teaching them how to think, enabling their dreams to soar. It's also not an exaggeration to say that without the issue of schooling, Yunkin wouldn't have won. Elections are decided by many factors. One is the relative strength of the candidates. One is the national political climate. In Virginia, there is the fact that the governor's race is usually won by whatever party is not in the White House. But in every race, certain issues dominate. In Virginia that year, questions of school closures, school curriculums, and the public school embrace of transgender rights were hot. The epicenter was Loudoun County. In June, the school board in Loudoun County, a school district serving more students than those of Baltimore or Milwaukee, debated the controversial issue of transgender bathroom access, sports participation, and also the issue of pronoun use. Hundreds of parents descended onto the meeting and shut it down with their chanting, and what the school board deemed failure to exhibit decorum. Fox 5 DC issued this report from the scene. This cell phone video captures the response as some opponents of the transgender policies called for the ouster of some school board members. Loudoun County deputies later announced the arrest of one man for disorderly conduct and resisting arrest, while another man faced charges for trespassing after refusing to leave. One of those two men was a plumber named Scott Smith. He was at the school board meeting to pursue an agenda item that dovetailed with the debate on transgender accommodation, but was also unique. Smith's daughter, he alleged, and was later proven to be right, she had been assaulted in the girl's bathroom by a boy wearing a skirt. And when a parent backing transgender rights told him she was ready to post negative reviews about his business, he yelled at her. The authorities stepped in, and there's actually cell phone footage of that moment. You can hear a person, presumably Smith's wife, yelling that her daughter was sexually assaulted in a bathroom. What was the district going to do about it? When the Board of Education later convened, having cleared the chamber and arrested Smith, this exchange took place. Board member Beth Bart, do we have assaults in our bathrooms or locker rooms regularly? School Superintendent Scott Ziegler, to my knowledge, we don't have any record of assaults occurring in our restrooms. But Ziegler did know about the assault when he gave that answer. Two years later, Smith, who is appealing his disorderly conduct charge, spoke with the D.C. CBS affiliate WUSA. You know, if we can't stand up and defend our families with our hands at our side and use a loud voice and call somebody a name, what has this country come to? Smith was in the board meeting after his daughter was sexually assaulted by a teen who went on to sexually assault another student at a different school. Her case and the explosive meeting galvanized the parents' rights movement that swept Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin into office. And since then, Superintendent Scott Ziegler has been fired over how the cases were handled. This is all well known to the local audience in Loudoun County and to Virginia overall. But nationally, the reporting on the matter was spotty and often inaccurate. 
Conservative media swept in, sensing a sympathetic figure in Smith and an officious and dishonest entity in the school board. The Washington Post sent reporters to the juvenile trial of the boy who sexually assaulted Smith's daughter. The encounter started off consensually. The girl actually told the boy to meet her in the girl's bathroom as they had met before, but then it escalated into assault. The boy was found guilty of two counts of forcible sodomy. The sum total of the New York Times news coverage of the entire incident amounted to two sentences in two different stories in October. One story was titled, GOP attack involving Toni Morrison novel in Flames Virginia contest. There was this parenthetical. For months, the conservative media have lavished national attention on local events in suburban Loudoun County, Virginia, including a sexual assault case that revived Republican criticism of gender-inclusive bathroom policies in schools. And here was the other mention. One of the group's ads centers on the sexual assault of a girl in a high school bathroom, a case that conservatives have used to criticize transgender bathroom laws, although it was not clear the attacker in that case was transgender. That's it to describe a, if not the seminal moment underlining the biggest political story of the year. There was an op-ed by Michelle Goldberg dismissing the assault under the headline, The Right's Big Lie About a Sexual Assault in Virginia. Lead, this is a story about how the right twisted the sexual assault of a teenager into a culture war fantasy. The column quoted Senator Tom Cotton, who claimed that a girl, quote, was raped in a bathroom by a boy wearing girls' clothes and the Loudoun County School Board covered it up because it would interfere with their transgender policy during Pride Month. Cover-ups a judgment call has never been proved. But there was a denial that the incident took place by a superintendent who knew it took place and was later fired for his handling of that incident, including that very denial. Everything else Cotton said is accurate. So the New York Times last Sunday broke its near silence of two years with a very well-reported story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine. Reporter Charles Homans filed the story. It gives more details, including interviews with all the important adults and includes well-rendered phrases like tessellations of residential subdivisions and aerosolized fury. It was, however, titled and framed this way, how a sexual assault in a school bathroom became a political weapon. Subhead, it was an explosive claim that a Virginia school district covered up a crime in order to protect transgender rights. But was it true? Betteridge's Law of Headlines states that for a headline framed as a rhetorical question, the answer to that question is always no. Is Betteridge's Law of Headlines always right? The answer is also no. But generally, if you can prove a point, just say the point. The Times could have said now, as they did in that 2021 op-ed, that all this was based on a lie. But they actually can't say that in good conscience because it's not based on a lie. To wit, the following is all unequivocally true. A concerned father was manhandled and left bleeding at a school board meeting by authorities when he came to complain that his daughter was raped in the school bathroom. The rapist was a boy wearing a skirt. The incident was denied by the school's top official at that extremely contentious meeting, even though the official knew about it. The issue being debated at that extremely contentious meeting that was shut down included prominently boys' access to girls' bathrooms. Did the rapist who entered the bathroom wearing a skirt actually identify as gender fluid, as claimed? 
Well, the New York Times Magazine story in discussing the boy's supposed gender fluidity references a school investigation, a police interview, where he was described not as gender fluid, but as pansexual. And here's how the New York Times describes the difference. Quote, pansexuality or attraction toward people regardless of their sexual or gender identity is categorically different from gender fluidity. It is a sexual orientation, not a gender identity. And so... A self-identified pansexual would not have been allowed into the girl's bathroom. Okay, but the boy was in the girl's bathroom and he was wearing a skirt and he had been in the girl's bathroom before and he did go on to assault other girls in a different school and administrators were sent an email by the school's chief operations officer with the warning, the incident is related to policy 8040, i.e. the policy about pronoun sports and bathroom use. What actually happened in the bathroom is, of course, horrible, but it's actually not really in dispute. If the boy was allowed to be there because of a transgender bathroom access policy that had yet to pass, well, that's also not in dispute. He wasn't there. The policy had not passed yet. But was the justifiably angry father of a victimized girl given the runaround in order to defend policy 8040? There is some evidence the answer is yes. I would also say it's fair to wonder if a boy wearing a skirt entering the girl's bathroom many times without sanction might have been the case because of a tolerance that policy 8040 was attempting to codify. And that attempt to codify it was the very source of concern of the parents of Loudoun County and eventually one of the big reasons why that state elected Glenn Youngkin to be its governor. Have I twisted all this into a culture war fantasy, as per the New York Times column, which linked approvingly to a Huffington Post column, which was titled GOP distorts Virginia bathroom sexual assault case for political gain, subhead despite Republican rhetoric, the facts show it had absolutely nothing to do with transgender inclusive bathroom policies. The author of that supposed straight news report has since been hired as senior politics editor for NBC News. There was a Huffington Post story six days prior that said there is no evidence the teenage boy was in a skirt at the time of the assault. That misreporting was not unique to the Huffington Post. It was rampant. It's good that now more of the accurate story is out there, and it's out there in the biggest forum in America, the New York Times. I'm not sure how much the New York Times magazine story will elevate the concerned parents of Loudoun County into a status higher than ignorant rubes, easy marks for conservative media. With its aerosolized tessellations, the intended audience for that story seems not to be actual Glenn Youngkin voters, but I would still like to think that it offered a bit more illumination into an important tale, a tale that has been cited as a political weapon and then had that citation of it as a weapon itself turned into a political weapon. There is no evidence that girls are less safe if transgender people use bathrooms. Assaults happen in many places for many reasons and are, of course, illegal in all those cases. Among those who use terms like gender fluidity and pansexuality, those terms have a different meaning from each other. And also, a gender fluid person is not an accurate description for every boy who wears a skirt. All that's true. But that doesn't mean that having a concern over all these quickly changing, disorienting attitudes, rhetoric, and rules isn't understandable. We should put forth an effort to make all of this new way of thinking, way of speaking, way of 
conducting ourselves in public schools and public places. We should make all of that understandable to the concerned parents of Loudoun County. And we should also put forth an earnest effort to make the parents of Loudoun County understandable to us. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, who I met nine years ago today. She's the CLO, Chief Lobster Officer of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Umpruji, Peru, Peru, and thanks for listening.